This is Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is Episode 7 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday, March the 20th. And Leon, what have we got on the agenda for this week? Well, we've got a chat with Lee Parker. Professor of Accounting at RMIT, and he's going to be talking to us all about economic history and the history of corporate, social and environmental responsibility and its implications today. Yeah, looking back and finally making, getting a lesson out of, uh, out of history, which uh, doesn't often happen these days. That's right, that's right. And then we have a chat with RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson. And that's very good. That's about privatisation, which is a hot potato in uh, New South Wales right this minute. Absolutely. Okay, so let's listen to uh, Lee Parker. Lee Parker, tell us about your study into British industrial companies. Well, it's been a, a fairly lengthy study looking at four particular British industrial pioneers who made major philanthropic uh, investments in not only their own factories, but in their local communities. So these companies were? And they were uh, the Cadbury Chocolate Empire, which came to be, and also Robert Owen, the uh, Scottish uh, cotton miller, and uh, there was Titus Salt, who was a large uh, wool uh, milling operation in Bradford uh, and then there was Willem Hesketh Lever who really founded the Sunlight Soap Factory uh, outside Liverpool and f- ended up founding the uh, the whole Leverhulme Corporation. So these guys socially were well ahead of their time weren't they? It was Mook and Brass in a lot of places. They were very ahead of their time. There were many people who emulated them subsequently. So a lot of industrialists picked up on their ideas. And what's really interesting, I think, from today's perspective is that actually they had deep personal philosophies and visions about the good society. And many of these driven visions were driven by their religious persuasions. So Cadbury was a Quaker. In fact, most of the chocolatiers in Britain were Quakers. Lever and Salt were Congregationalists, and Owen began as a Methodist but later became a Spiritualist. And my study finds that those particular religious-based visions really drove their strategies. So what exactly were their strategies? What did they do? They basically built what was called then model factories, which had better lighting, better working conditions, and were technologically advanced for their age. Indeed, Titus Salt's factory had the best environmental management technology of its era, and they also built model towns around their factories, which included everything up to town halls, hospitals, churches, the lot. And then they developed a complete social life and social support structure for their employees and for the local community, which ranged across education, health, welfare, sport, recreation. Basically, they had stepped in where governments had failed, had they not? Not really, because in the era in which they worked, there was no great tradition of government intervention. In fact, it was mostly the churches that did the social welfare work. So they basically saw a need in society and they stepped in to fill it because they had a vision generally of the good society 
And it was really the Victorian self-help philosophy that if you help people to live more healthily, if you educate them better, they start improving their own standard of living and in the end, everybody's a winner. So how profound an impact did they have on British society at that time? They had a huge impact. Uh, Robert Owen stopped employing children at the age of four and five in the mills and required them to reach the age of 10 before they went in the mill. It took another 25 years before legislation followed it through. But there were quite a number of things that they did, which legislators subsequently followed, including uh, insurance relief for unemployed. So some of them, when they had to put workers off because of downturns in demand, still kept them on some sort of income relief before they brought them back in. How much did this contribute to the British economy? You had an, an empire and all the rest of it. If you compare what went on back in those days with what's happening in China today, say with child labour, you know, do you see a parallel? Yeah, there's a very great parallel. They, uh, the, the, the pioneers themselves articulated both a business case motivation as well as a social vision. So they were not backward in coming forward and saying that they had to make the thing operate commercially because otherwise everybody lost out. In addition to that, though, if you compare it to today's international global community and business community, we know, China is only one example, that we have a lot of low-cost operations spread around the world, a lot of child labour, a lot of sweatshop labour, exactly the same thing as was happening in the era in which they worked. So arguably in the era in which these guys made these huge social investments, they appeared as if they were raising their cost factor well above their low-cost sweatshop competitors. And yet they succeeded because they built employee efficiency, employee loyalty, and indeed the health statistics in their towns were two to three times better and their death rates two to three times lower than even in the surrounding local communities. So they showed that it is possible to make the social and human investment in business in the global sweatshops environments of today. And politics was relatively stable, wasn't it? And that would be one of the problems in China, perhaps. Politics was relatively stable, although we have to remember that if we look at, say, the chocolate manufacturers in Britain and they were all Quakers, then they were heavily discriminated against uh, because of their particular religious beliefs. They had great difficulty in entering professional life, politics. Business was really the only way forward of them to go. So there was, you know, there was stability in some ways, not in others. Moving forward to today's time, I mean, there are three big issues now in society. One of uh, climate change. The other one is the growing divide between rich and poor. And the third has to be youth unemployment. What can companies do to follow the likes of Cadbury and Robert Owen? There are um, concepts already recognised in the business management literature, like corporate citizenship and strategic philanthropy. What they basically say is that corporations, even though they necessarily have to follow their profit and their bottom line focus, uh, can identify what their unique distinctive competencies are and what their particular resources are that they exploit really well. And they can translate that out into not only their employee scenario, but into their related community relations and community programs. So it's a matter of organisations being very strategic and looking at what they already do and how they do it 
and what they do really well and picking up some of the things that they're uniquely good at and then translating that out into how they recruit, educate, train and manage their workforce, how they relate to the communities that sit around their organisations. I mean, there are three types of companies around. There's one one type of company that has a competitive edge with its research and development. There's another company that has its competitive edge with uh, logistical management. And there's a third that seems to have its uh, competitive edge with um, building alliances. Do you see each of those three becoming pivotal in this sort of strategy? Um, It can be, but that's just three particular categories of the way organisations operate. But organisations have a lot of other features which even go down to their particular cultures. And we increasingly know, even in financial management terms nowadays, that some of the soft skills at senior management level and some of the almost intangible cultural factors are often the things that make an organisation highly competitive and highly successful, even though it's got the same physical assets, same distribution system as a competitor. So, you know, what you regard as your resources and your assets and your strategic competencies can be quite widespread in terms of evaluating yourself as a corporation and self-defining them. Does citizenship go hand in hand with profitability? These historical pioneers didn't just ask argue that it did, they demonstrated it. So my study found that they exercised and discharged their accountability through their actions. Now, we're very used to web, internet, reporting, disclosure and discourse as our vehicles for either demanding accountability of corporations or corporations trying to execute it. These guys showed that actually it's by what you do and how visible that is to the wider community that's also a really important way of being accountable to the community that ultimately gives you the license to operate. So how does Australia rate on that? That's very difficult to say. Uh, It's certainly beyond the scope of my particular study. But, uh, but there is certainly room for more criticism amongst companies, you would say that? There is today. absolutely more room. And there is, a, there is a persistent view, which is a neoliberal political philosophy that runs through most of our Western democracies, that we can't afford that sort of thing, that we have to go back to the old scientific management days of the 1880s to the 1920s and be lean and mean. And these pioneers operating in a very high competitive global economy at the time have demonstrated that today you can actually invest in people and environment around you and still be highly commercially successful and actually get a competitive edge. Lee Parker, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Lee. Yeah, Lee's fascinating, isn't he? I I thought I really enjoyed talking to him. I thought too, it was really interesting. Okay, and uh, now Sinclair and uh, the word on privatisation. Sinclair Davidson, the concept of privatisation is causing a lot of mayhem in New South Wales. What lessons can we draw from this? Privatisation is is one of those fantastic policies that governments pursue from time to time, which is very interesting because privatisation as a policy itself has got a phenomenal track record of success. Nonetheless, voters hate the idea of privatisation. They, they, they feel somehow that they are being ripped off, that it's all some sort of big scam. And so you, you have this incredible dichotomy between a successful, well, historically successful policies combined with voter dissatisfaction. 
that is causing the problem in New South Wales, but other states have done it quite successfully. I mean, Victoria did it quite well. Yes, Victoria did. Uh, the the private the electricity was privatised here in the nineteen nineties under the Kennett government, and I think. Uh, Certainly from a public finance perspective, it was a glorious success because if you recall, the government managed to sell the electricity generators for more than what they were actually worth. So the Victorian taxpayer did very, very well out of that arrangement. But nonetheless, it's very hard to convince people that this is such a good idea because at the end of the day, when you are talking about a government utility, people don't care about should governments own it, should the private sector own it. What they care about is twofold. If they walk into the room and flick the switch that the lights will come on and two they're not going to be skinned alive when they get their bills so you've actually got to talk to people in terms of yes the electricity supply will be going and you're not going to be overcharged by a private monopoly and that's how you need to couch the debates as opposed to sort of the more higher level you know should government be doing this sort of thing what we're going to use the money for because people somehow think that they're going to get ripped off it doesn't seem to be have been handled very well by in new south wales and for that matter queensland australian politicians have 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 really done a poor job over the last few years at selling sensible economic reforms, I have to say. Now, part of this is because I think people are are telling the wrong sorts of stories. And part of it also is I think the Australian electorate at the minute is very grumpy. Uh, Politicians are out of favour and politicians telling what they consider to be dodgy stories are not going to be getting very far. But if we just have to go across the Tasman to New Zealand, where the New Zealand government was able to sell uh, half of its electricity utilities in the last couple of years, um, they had exactly the same pushback from the electorate and Mr. Keyes went out there and managed to convince people this was a good thing and he did very well. This was an election election issue in the New Zealand um, election, which was what late last year, so within the last six months or so. He did very, very well. And yet um, in, in Queensland, uh, we saw a government that had... I think, what, nearly 90% of the seats in the parliament uh, lose office after one term with a botched explanation around uh, privatisation. So two very different electoral outcomes in our part of the world in a very short period of time. I really think it's about selling the issue, marketing the ideas. So what did Keyes do? I think Keyes spoke about the issues of privatisation in terms that people really appreciated that in, in, in terms that people wanted to hear, was able to reassure them that they weren't losing out. Because we've got to bear in mind, when it, when it comes to policy, people suffer from a number of biases, which we can call. The first one is an anti-market bias. The second one is an anti-foreign bias. The third one is a pessimism bias. And finally, there is a make-work bias. Privatization actually feeds into all four of those biases because we come along having more or less explained to people over the last 70 years since the end of the Second World War, that government ownership was a good thing. We come along and we say all of a sudden, no, actually, government ownership is not such a good thing. We've been telling you for a long, long time we're good at doing things, and all of a sudden, no, we're not. So people think there's a bit of cognitive dissonance around that. Then... We're saying to people, well, not only are we going to sell a government asset, which we've always told you is a good idea for us to own, it's going to get better in future. And people say, well, how, how does that actually work? And part of it is overselling because we say, you know, prices are lower in states where um, there's been privatization. But in actual fact, nominal prices are not going to fall. So people expect nominal prices are going to fall. But in actual fact, what if you look what's happened is that the real prices have fallen. So price changes over time have been lower. So people sort of hear you are saying prices are going to be lower and then they're not well well they were never going to be you know so you know there's that issue too and then of course um 
very often people are very worried that foreign multinational corporations are going to buy these firms or what they're particularly worried about very often is uh, foreign state-owned enterprises are going to be buying these firms and that's also something people are a bit concerned about because they say well if it's not good enough for our own government to own these assets why is it good enough for some foreign government to own these same assets and and that is a fair question Um, I think there are good answers to that but nonetheless that is a fair question to ask and then finally the make work bias privatization has been phenomenal normally successful all around the world but one of the things that does happen is that there are worker layoffs. Government overemploys people, and that very often is one of the reasons why we have government ownership. But when you move into private ownership, there are job losses associated with that. So that means that public sector unions have got a very strong incentive to oppose privatizations. And that's more or less what we actually observe as well. So where people are worried about job losses, and certainly I think here in Australia we are worried about job losses, uh, promising a campaign of privatization people think higher prices, job losses, something dodgy going on, and therefore it's really unpopular. So it's it's not at all really surprising. So has Baird chosen the wrong strategy? No, because we also have a problem that uh, governments need money. So we're in a situation where we've got aging infrastructure. State governments need to raise money from somewhere in order to finance that infrastructure. Public uh, um, appetite for debt isn't very high. So their argument is we will substitute one asset for another. And so they need the money, but at the same time, they need to tell a much better story around selling the policies that they have. And and to be fair, I don't think it's unreasonable for the electorate to say to a politician, you want to do something big like privatizing assets, you've got to tell me a good story. And I don't think that our politicians have been telling good stories. Victoria's got an issue with the East-West Link. The Victorian government has one. It looks like it's going to have to pay out a massive compensation bill. And it also has a whole lot of infrastructure works in the pipeline. Uh, Do you see any room for privatisation, any further privatisation in Victoria to pay for for these issues? It really depends on the wash up. That, that comes out of the East-West Link contract situation. Um, the Victorian government could be up for $1.2 billion in compensation. Um, I, I doubt it actually have to pay that much, but nonetheless, it's going to have to pay a fair amount of money. I think it was hoping to borrow the money to, to undertake all the other infrastructure spending that it was planning to undertake. Again, depending upon what it does with East-West Link, it may or may not have, be able to borrow that money. If they can't borrow that money or as much as they'd hoped, they're going to have to sell something. Now, bearing in mind, uh, we sold a lot of our, our, our assets in the 1990s. So there isn't that much left to sell. I'm thinking perhaps uh, that they do own the, the rail network. They, I think they own the, uh, um, the, the harbour, the, the port authority. Uh, they own the Westgate Bridge. So there, there are a few things that they could sell, that they could privatise, that they could put a toll on. These things are going to be unpopular, I have to say. So it, it really depends upon how desperate they become in terms of the need for money. Well, the issue is, I mean, the rail network, uh, the port are going to need massive repairs. So they're not going to be uh, exactly a viable proposition for a buyer, well, they, unless they come at a discount, well, uh, well, which yes. means that the Victorian <laughs> government won't be getting that much. Well, even if you have to sell it at a discount, it, it might still pay you to do so, even if on the proviso that the new owner actually invests some money in upgrading it. If if you could sell it at a price with the understanding that the new owner is going to upgrade the Port Authority, and that then generates all sorts of other trade and activity, that, that, that that's still a good idea. 
but it's not actually generating money to a lot of money to do other things with. Yep. So even if you're selling at a discount, which I wouldn't normally recommend people sell at a discount, but even if you're selling at a discount, um, that might still be a good policy, but not a revenue raising policy. I mean, I, I think the Victorian government are, are, are in a bit of financial constraint at the minute, given the choices that they have made. So really, privatisation won't be an option for the Victorian government. It's more likely to go into debt. Yes, I, I'd imagine that debt's going to be a, a more preferable uh, uh, position for the Victorian government. First of all, they don't have much to sell. The other thing to bear in mind is the historical record suggests that it is centre-right governments that are more likely to privatise than centre-left governments. And at the minute in Victoria, we have a centre-left government. Um, the New South Wales government, of course, is going to the polls as a centre-right government. So I'd expect to see a centre-right governments that need money tend to privatise. Centre-left governments that need money tend to borrow. So just on a purely sort of political economy, ideological space, I, I wouldn't expect the Victorian government to be privatising even those few assets that it does still have. Which means Victoria will just be carrying more debt. I suspect that is the situation. And um, I heard Mr. Andrews the other day just saying, you know, the idea of not borrowing is an old-fashioned idea. So I suspect we're going to be looking at a lot more if he, if the international debt markets will lend to him given the kerfuffle over the East-West Link. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much. Thank you. So what do you think, Leon? Uh, Sinclair, as usual, has a pretty good steely eye on these things. Absolutely, and uh, so it's going to be very interesting to see how governments handle it. And, it, and he's actually saying governments haven't handled it well. No, uh, uh, way back, I think, under, uh, Victoria under Jeff Kennett didn't do too badly, but uh, in general, Queensland and New South Wales haven't done it very well at no. all. Okay, and uh, now the news. Gary, first things first uh, is that uh, Chinese Premier Li Keqing says China's new GDP target of around 7% set for this year won't be easy to meet. Now, China registered 7.4% growth last year. That's the slowest in 24 years. And earlier this month, it set a target for 2015 at about 7% amid indications of weak domestic demand and a still sluggish global economy. And it set a target of creating at least 10 million urban jobs this year. His comments come as the ANZ Roy Morgan China Consumer Confidence Index declined by 1.5 points to a record low of 144.3 points in March 2015. That's the fourth consecutive month of decline. And also a recent IMF forecast said China's growth rate would further decline to 6.8% this year and 6.3% next year. And that'll put it behind India. Yeah. So really, in effect, China is coming back to a, more, a more, much more normal rate of growth, but it's not going to do us much good. That's right. Now, other big piece of news. Interesting, Greece has actually met the deadline for paying a third part of its loan to the International Monetary Fund for March. The instalment, which was due on Monday, was worth some 560 million euro. That's about uh, US $590 million. And earlier this month, several officials were hinting that Greece might not be able to meet its IMF payments that were due this month. But so far, the country has met all the repayments. Now, the government has to make another repayment of about 350 million euro to the IMF and repayment some of its 1.6 billion dollars of 1.6 billion euro of short-term notes on Friday. Now, Greece has also entered a second week of talks with a delegation of technical and Inspectors from the country's creditors, the European Union, the European Central Bank and the International Monetary Fund. And they're already in Athens and they're trying to work out on reforms that uh, the government will have to quickly implement to unlock desperately needed financial aid. And one of the first issues they have to work out is how much is Greece's revenue going to be 
falling short. And there have been reports of a possible black hole of around 2 billion euro in the primary surplus of 2014. And at the moment, talks are not going well because the Greeks are saying the technical officers from the IMF, European Central Bank and uh, the European Union are sticking their noses where they shouldn't be. And they're, taking, and they're trying to interfere in Greek, Greece's politics. Uh, what they mean is that they're trying to find the truth. That's right. That's right. So it's not going well. And Greece isn't giving them the information they want. Yeah, so it's uh, we're still hanging by a thread, aren't we? That's right. Now, other piece of news shows the patchy recovery in the U.S. Industrial production in the U.S. rose less than expected in February, dampening optimism over the economic outlook. That's according to official data. In a report, the Federal Reserve said that industrial production increased by seasonally adjusted 0.1% last month. That was below expectations for a 0.3% from the previously reported increase of 02 and meanwhile, manufacturing production declined by seasonally adjusted 0.2% in February, and everyone uh, had uh, forecast forecasted to actually go up by 0.1%. And capacity utilisation rate, which is a measure of how much firms are using their resources, declined to 78.9% in February. And builders also pulled back on new home construction, a sign of uneven demand in the US housing market, although it might also be a sign of the harsh winter. They've had a really bad winter. Yeah. And US housing starts plunged 17% from a month earlier to a season adjusted 897,000 in February. I'd expect once the spring hits in there that uh, that figure will pick up a lot. I hope so. I hope so. Now, Prime Minister Tony Abbott has warned his colleagues to expect tough decisions to achieve his goal of balancing the budget within five years, which is curious because Treasury is saying we're going to have deficits for 40 years. So who do you believe? I mean, the PM has told colleagues he's still focused on repairing the nation's finances by 2020, and that's despite the growing cost of policy backdowns on higher education, Medicare, and threat to tax revenue from falling commodity prices. And this week he told Liberal and National MPs that the government was determined to achieve major budget reforms in line with projections in last month's Internet Generational Report. Cabinet ministers have been meeting on the Expenditure Review Committee, known as the Razor Gang, which is chaired by Tony Abbott. But at the same time, when that story got out, Abbott then went out and told journalists that it's going to be a dull budget without any big, deep cuts. You don't know who to believe, himself or himself. It's very strange. It's very odd, and I think that the sad thing is that lay people such as I have to conclude that Abbott really hasn't got a clue, and he's just, just mouthing slogans. Now, iron ore price, the iron price of iron ore has actually slipped below $55, Gary, and it's raised the prospect that it could be soon be trading at 50 bucks. Benchmark iron ore for immediate delivery to Tianjin in China is now trading at $54.50 a tonne. That's down from 5.4% from its previous close. It's going to mean that the junior miners are going to show casualties. BHP and possibly Rio are going to be okay because I think uh, BHP can make a profit at uh it's somewhere as low as 30 or 40%. Bearing in mind that when the government put down its budget, uh, iron ore was around $95. And of course, uh, the government's uh, take on uh, 50 bucks isn't nearly as good. No, no way, no. Another interesting story, Gary, is that Communications Minister Malcolm Turnbull has flagged changes to tax rules so that multinational organisations like Google and Facebook can be charged GST on the advertising they sell to Australian clients. Now, a 10% impost on Australian advertising and search engine revenues, which are reportedly set to exceed $2.4 billion this year would raise $240 million for the states. His proposal to impose a tax on Google and Facebook and others that do 
business in Australia without paying full corporate taxes locally is separate from recommendations to reform media reach and ownership rules, which is now waiting cabinet refu- uh, approval. When he was asked about wider-ranging reforms to deal with the problem of multinational businesses reaching into the Australian market for a share of the multi-billion dollar advertising pie, Turnbull nominated extending the GST as an option. Yeah, some say it's going to be difficult to uh, police, but it, at least it's a good idea. I don't see why they shouldn't pay GST. That's right. That's right. Now, at the same time, Turnbull has blindsided Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation and its pay television joint venture Foxtel. And what he's done is propose a cherry-picked media ownership policy, allowing more mergers between newspapers, TV, network stations and radio stations, but protecting 9, 10 and 7's domination of sport broadcasting. And his recommendation now out to Tony Abbott and seeking cabinet approval, the government abolished Keating-era ownership restrictions, has been welcomed by media executives like Wincore owner Bruce Gordon, Greg Highwood from CEO, the CEO Fairfax, and the changes would likely see a string of mergers allowing television networks, radio stations and newspapers to compete with unregulated digital entries like Google and Netflix. And what's important here, Turnbull has denied Foxtel's request to give it access to more sporting events that are reserved for free-to-air TV, because he knows this is going to be unpopular with voters. And that means Foxtel is going to be forced to pay 9, 10 and 7 to transmit their channels. And Richard Freudenstein, the CEO of Foxtel, uh, which is jointly owned by Telstra News Corp, said that the anti-siphoning list should be renamed the anti-Foxtel list. Well, okay, fair enough. But still, free-to-air access to sport is vital in Australia. Well, Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch actually hit out at Turnbull and he took to Twitter declaring... Ost. Turnbull's plan to scrap certain rules suit buddies at nine. Can't oppose dumping all regs, but not this. Nice to see how MT plays. And uh, But uh, Turnbull hit back at Murdoch, saying that the right to watch top sporting events of free-to-air TV is very Australian arrangement that should be protected. But what's interesting is that the rift between Turnbull and the billionaire media mogul Rupert Murdoch is now out in the open, and that's got implications for Tony Abbott. Uh, indeed, it has. Um, but uh, having a row with Murdoch is not going to affect uh, Turnbull's heart rate at all. No, but uh, let's remember Rupert Murdoch does not forget. That's exactly true. There, and are, there are elephants and there's Rupert Murdoch. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that's the bigger elephant in the room. That's right. But whether the newspapers, it's a good point, whether the newspapers have the influence that they had in the uh, Whitlam era is a very good question. That's, a, that's another issue, and whether they're connected with the market and the way they were during the Whitlam era is another question. That's right, and I think uh, while Mr Murdoch may have uh, considerable power at News Limited, I'm not sure that it's quite as powerful politically as it was. No, no. I mean, I remember during when uh, in the Queensland election, all the Murdoch papers, all the newspapers were actually saying, re-elect Campbell Newman, and um, that didn't happen. And when that happened, I thought... Is it that nobody reads editorials or is it because newspapers are just out of touch with what's happening out there in the market? I think it's a bit of both. Um, I don't think the uh, hoi polloi, to use a nasty word, read editorials. And I think we've got to the point where newspapers, some newspapers, and uh, maybe News Limited uh, newspapers at that, uh, people don't necessarily believe them. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, another interesting survey, more than a quarter of Australia's top 300 companies have no women on their board. Boards, while the number of female directors at some government-owned corporations has gone backwards. And a study commissioned by lobby group Women on Boards has found that 81% of companies that make up the ASX 300 have no female directors. That's 81. That's 
8 out of 10 companies in the ASX 300 have no women directors. And just under a quarter of directors with ASX 100 companies are women. That's a 5% improvement compared to 2013. Only five companies in the top 100 had no female directors. TPG Telecom, Ramsey Healthcare, Cube Holdings, Surtex Medical and Domino's Pizza Enterprises. And uh, I mean, the only company that has a lot of women on the board is Medibank Private. Gender equality at government-owned corporations has gone backwards federally and in Queensland and Western Australia since 2013. And the other interesting piece of news is a a report from Deloitte Access Economics says Australian retail should savour the current financial year while it lasts retail sales growth is expected to slow towards the end of 2015. So they say retail sales grew 3.6% in real terms and 4.9% in nominal terms over 2014. It makes 2014 the strongest year to the sector since the global financial crisis. But it says the short-term outlook is good, but the sector could start to struggle by the end of 2015 with what's going on in housing. And that's it for this week, Gary. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, we'll be back uh, next week. That's right. Next week, we've got a chat with MYOB Chief Technical Officer, Simon Rake-Allen. And very interesting it is too. Well worth tuning in for. That's right. In the meantime, you can uh, keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. Stay safe for the week and we look forward to talking to you next week.